Welcome to A Force for Change. I'm Diane Dosis. And I'm Kata Isari. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast, which is brought to you by Praxis. We created this podcast to explore the through lines in our work to end gender-based violence, where we've been, where we are now, and where we've yet to go. The advocates, organizers, and activists we interview on the show hold pieces of our origin stories. We'll learn about the power of connection from the conversations that led to the creation of one of the first shelters for Asian Americans to the ways we've created space for survivors to connect with one another and lead our movement for social justice. In today's episode, Kata speaks with Eileen Houdan. Eileen has over 40 years of experience as an advocate and activist in the movement to end gender-based violence. Eileen shares what it was like to begin this work as a Native woman, to advocate for culturally specific support, and to dismantle the barriers she faced along the way. Eileen has co-founded multiple Native organizations to address violence against Native women. She has worked with over 350 tribes across the country to strengthen their responses to gender-based violence. Eileen has been instrumental in advocating for legislative change on the state and national level about issues including the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and she continues to work with a group of grandmothers known as the Okichidakwe Council. Well, I'm here today with Eileen Hudan. I'm talking to Eileen from Seattle, Washington, where I live. And Seattle is the traditional homeland of the Coast Salish people, including the Duwamish, Suquamish, Stillaguamish, and Muckleshoot peoples. Eileen is speaking with me from St. Paul, Minnesota. Eileen, would you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm from the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and I am a Crane Clan. Thank you, Eileen. It's so good to have this time with you today. And I'm going to start by asking if you could tell us how you first got involved in the gender-based violence field or movement. Well, I I started thinking about it, and I, I came up with uh, four times. It was actually the first time I started. I was sitting alone in my living room. I was wondering if the women in the women's movement would understand me. And I wondered what they would say to me. No one else seemed to understand, not my family, not my church, and certainly not my friends. When I became battered for the umpteenth time, after he fell asleep, I snuck out of the house with my four children. I didn't know who to call. We got to the top of the hill, which was uh, an ordeal with four children uh, and three babies. And uh, eventually I got to the top of the hill, went in, went into the nursing home up there, and I called a taxi. So with a pillowcase full of guns and my children, I went to Hennepin County Medical Center. From there, we went to Women's Advocates. That was in October of 73, uh, weeks after it had opened. And Sharon Rice Bond was the advocate that was working that the overnight. And what is it that led you to stay connected to this work? Well, I didn't stay there long. I only stayed probably about four days. But um, in 1978, as a battered woman working with two other women to address anti-racism in the movement, 
we drove to a meeting in Hibbing, Minnesota. And the meeting was to discuss how how the state funding was going to be spent. So me, Anne, and Jackie wrote a two-page resolution, which we asked the women at the meeting to adopt. And we were at this meeting all day. We were there from very early to, I'm, I'm not even sure what time we ended. We whittled it down to one or two lines, and it was there was argument every time we brought the resolution up. And it came down to that the, the money would be dispersed to all, including women of color. And that was that was what we wanted most of all, but but we said we want women of color included. We don't want to be uh, not stated in how the money's going to be spent. And they said after all, after all that argument, they said, well, if you're going to include women of color, you're going to include women of of all. I think they called it special interest groups and. And they said, lesbian women, women who are disabled, and and so on and so forth. And and we said, yes, we wanted to include all women. And after all that argument, they did write that in there. And eventually, every one of the categories that were framed at the time, uh, they included in there. The third time I volunteered was for Harriet Tubman Women's Shelter. And I went through the volunteer training four times. I mean, I only had to go through it once, but I kept learning uh, something different each time I went. And I remember uh, Bernice Sisson saying to me, why are you going through this training so many times? I said, well, I learned something different each time. (laughs) And, uh, and it was a way for me to learn. I had never heard this before. I never, it was all new to me. Yeah. And the fourth time? And the fourth time was in 82 after an assault and hospitalization. I worked at Hopkins Project or Sojourner's Shelter. From there, it's been nonstop advocacy. From 1982 until now, it's been paid. And so I've been... I've been doing this since then. That's incredible dedication. We're so lucky to have you as part of this work for so long. You, I know that you're particularly dedicated to the experiences of Native women and Native survivors. I didn't know that story about you trying to make visible uh, and find a place for women of color and Native women and other marginalized survivors. What is it about that history that you think is important for us today? Well, I think what's important about it is that there's still a struggle for women of color, and we're all put into categories, and we're very, we're a very diverse group, and even as Native women, we're diverse. So there, there are 560 plus tribes right now. It's diverse, as you know, as diverse as as you as you can one could imagine when you say 560 tribes. Well, that means that you're all different. You're all, you have all different languages. You have all different customs and all of that. And that's true. 
Some of us are matriarchal, some of us are patriarchal, and that means something very different for each of us. And we have to learn that about each other. So asking other women to learn that about us seems a lot to ask. You know, it seems ordinary that we should expect that, but it also seems a lot to ask because how 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 can anyone take time to learn all that? I mean, I'm still learning. That's that's all I can think about is I'm still learning. And I'm 76. Well, it, you know, Eileen, as I listen to you and I think about my own roots in this work and I'm uh, reminded of the incredible invisibility of Native women and other women of color in those especially I think in those early years, but it didn't mean that Native women and women of color weren't active. It just meant that they were invisible in the broader movement. Is that Was that your experience as well? That was my experience as well. So in the summer of 82, when we had the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence Conference, and it was the second conference, and that one was held in, in Michigan. I went there and hoping to meet other Indian women. And the first night I went to a, a large hotel room. It was probably um, the size of an auditorium. And I sat by myself. The person that had facilitated the women of color meeting that day had gone to her room and was feeding her baby. And that was Dana Farabee. And I was looking around for Tilly Black Bear because I heard that she was there. But um, other other than us three, there there was no other Indian women at the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence meeting. I wasn't aware that the representation of Native women was so minimal at that time. And yet I know from the work that you do and, and hearing you talk in other settings that there were still ways in which Native women were organizing in those years in response to violence against women. Can you tell me a little bit about how Women of Nations was formed? Well, that was started in May of 1982. I believe that there had been a number of programs that had been funded, but they were only funded for one year, and then and then they lost their funding. We assumed that it was because they were multi-service agencies, and they didn't look at just the needs of battered women. I ran into Norma, Wanda, and Leslie at Pillsbury United Methodist and there was a training there was that was being held by the women's movement. It was uh, anti-racism training. And so there were women from all over the state there. The black women and the white women got into a fight and was around anti-racism. And I said, oh, God, how am I going to join in this? And I said, I'm not going joining in this. So I walked out and had a cigarette and Wanda and Leslie and, and Norma followed me out and they said the St. Paul Indian Center is not getting their funding. They're losing the money. Uh, we've gone around and we've asked other people if they would help and and they're not they're not willing to do anything. And I said, Well, why don't you do something? They said, Well, we're 
we're not anybody. <laughs> and I said, well, you could be. <laughs> and, and they, and anyway, the four of us got together and we started Women of Nations and we got funded in October. Oh, so that's amazing. that was just months. It, it just happened. Yeah. Well, it sounds like from a lot of hard work that you all put in to make it happen. Well, that was, that was true because we... Um, made a commitment to work 20 hours a week, uh, each of us, beyond our jobs. This was all, this was all volunteer, a volunteer organization. And in fact, today, there are still shelters that are, that are run by Native women that are all volunteer organizations. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting, Eileen, as you were talking, I was reflecting on I wonder how many advocates today are aware of the ways in which things were pieced together in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s. I can remember similarly, like 10 of us sleeping in a room at a meeting or at a conference and how that would be so shocking probably for advocates today, but that people, I know there's many people that volunteer, but I don't know that it's as visible that that was really, there was no other option. Either you volunteered or it didn't happen. What, what was your experience with that? Well, well, we were told that volunteering doesn't work with Indian women, that uh, that would be, uh, that would be passe or, or it just wouldn't work. And so we looked at, at the person that was saying that to us and we said, well, that's crazy. Oh, we don't call volunteering. We call it helping. So, so that it was different, uh, different in terminology. And so we would say to someone, oh, would you help us do this? And they would say yes, because a person can't turn down someone that's saying, will you help me? Well, they could turn down if, if, if you said, would you volunteer? Say no. But you can't say no to helping. We trained about 60 Native women a year for eight years, and then they started organizing a shelter, and it was all volunteer. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that we are trying to pick apart is kind of where this movement became so professionalized. And certainly I never thought about, but the word volunteer even is professionalization, right? You're talking about a community value versus like a structural definition of what someone's role is. Yes, 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 yes. I I still say, will you help me? I don't think I've I've used the word volunteer except when I'm talking to non-Native women and or if I'm talking to someone in the in the women's movement, then I will say volunteer. But uh, if I'm talking to Native women, I say, will you help me? And they always will. They'll help in whatever way they can. Well, one of the questions that I was thinking as you were speaking is, how was your organizing received in the Native community? And it sounds like there was a great response. (laughs) Well, there was a great response from battered women. (laughs) Because all of the women who volunteered (laughs) or uh, helped us were battered women. And uh, we set up a booth at the powwow. This was a, a year later. And we had T-shirts and we said, Women in Nation. We had a big sign that said Women in Nations. And, and everybody walked way around us. 
and they didn't want anything to do with us. And it was like that uh, until after, until we started the shelter. And so it, it took about eight years. I mean, there were were no men involved, um, and gradually there started to be men involved in some ways. We didn't get much help. In, in fact, we took uh, matchbooks around to uh, all the organizations, all the Indian organizations uh, where, where women could pick them up and they could have, if you're battered, this and this and this and 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 then we had a number for them to call and they and they would call us well we were trying to get the word out that we had an organization and we would help women find shelter so when it came to the bars none of us wanted to go to them but but we all we we forced ourselves we went in pairs then <laughs> we i was talking to this waiter at the bar and i said hey will you pass these out to <laughs> pass these matchbooks out to women and he looked at me he says what are they and i showed him. I, he said okay 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 put them over there put them over there and they didn't want to touch them and we put them in oh they're about four or five I don't know they're probably about six or seven bars that are considered native bars here in in Minneapolis and St. Paul but yeah that was that was interesting they they didn't want to touch them so they'd say yes to us (laughs) (laughs) well that's yeah that's a creative way to get it done is they didn't want to touch them right and the other thing I mean we would uh we would visit the coalition office because it was located in St. Paul and we'd get some, some of their uh, training materials and we'd bring a handful to each director of organizations. Now, Norma, Wanda, Wanda and Leslie had already been to these organizations, but we wanted to get the word out that, that we're starting an organization. So we went to them and we had these articles and we gave a different one to each director. So we did a lot of education in that in, in the first eight years. And I think that's one of the reasons. Well, with all the women that we trained, all the women that were in, that were involved, that that's one of the reasons that that Minnesota has uh, other Indian women look to Minnesota as a place to to start or a place to to come to yeah you what you have done here has and you and other native women has really been a model for the country and it it sounds like you were doing organizing within the mainstream movement and then organizing within native communities yes and then over that eight-year period it shifted what do you think helped it shift to a place where people didn't walk way around your booth at the powwow I believe it was we reached a magic number, <laughs> and I I'm not sure what that number is. There are about uh, twenty six thousand Native people in the metro area, and I believe in that eight years we had talked enough about it. We had monthly meetings with our advocates, and there were usually about about twenty women at that meeting, and so. I think we did a lot of training. You know, we just said, hey, we want people to know that we can do this and that we can do it in the best way possible. And we said, 
we're not going to say you have to be such and such before you volunteer, but you have to monitor yourself and you have to say, I can't be involved and you have to withdraw at that time and come back when you, when you can. And so I remember this woman who was going to meet her husband and he, he was living up north at the time. And she had gotten order for protection and, and had left him, basically. And she had about five children. And she said, well, I have to go and see him and so on and so forth. And, and he ha- gets to see the kids. And and she was drinking. We didn't know that she was at first. And then she confided in Norma that she had. And and she said, I, I don't know how to deal with this. And then we said, okay, well, first of all, Norma will will meet with you about that. So this woman had developed a strong relationship with Norma. She became her AA sponsor. And Norma had uh, maintained that relationship until she had died. That woman had died recently. But but I I remember they had been friends throughout all this time, very close friends and had maintained that relationship throughout their whole lives. And so it was in those relationships and in those conversations that a lot has grown. That's amazing. And you are describing some of the uh, ways in which you interacted and were together in community as Native advocates that counters what a lot of what we hear in the mainstream today, that there's rules about, you know, how long you could be out of the program before you were right. there. And do you drink or do you not drink or do right. you socialize with the with survivors or not, not that you may have worked with? And it sounds like you folks created a new way of being with each other. Right. We we said that basically those rules don't work with us and that we we can't use those rules. We can't use any of them. We decided that early on when we were first meeting to start Women of Nations and we said, We can't we can't tell people this. We can't say that to people and and uh but we asked them to draw the line, to pull themselves out. Well, well, they're going through this crisis and come back in when they were finished. And they did that We, because we were very clear about that. We did not want their, their behavior during that time causing a problem. And they didn't either. So that, that worked. Yeah. Trusting them, it sounds like, to yes. recognize when they were available or able and when they weren't. Yes. Yeah. What a wonderful model. It, it makes me think about what's going on in our movement today. Sometimes I don't call it a movement because I feel like we're more like a field. But I I wonder when you think back on those early times, what is important to keep in mind right now, given where we're at in this work? Well, I was thinking that uh, the movement today, well, not so much the movement is a field, like you say, and because of that, it's very professionalized. There are women who have are required to have bachelor's degrees or master's degrees to be in the movement. <laughs> and so if you if you don't have one of those, you might as well forget it. you're not going to be involved. But I would say that what's happened today is that 
that things are so fragmented that I was talking to a woman last week who was telling me about her experience and the women didn't know how to get orders for protection. They didn't, uh, they would just house the women. And, and I was wondering, what, what did they do? And I asked her, and we we must have talked for about six hours while I asked her what they did and how they interacted with women. And they have formal barriers as well. You know, they have they have doors up that have plastic glass or and this was before the pandemic. <laughs> they have glass in in the halfway door and they talk to women through that and it's uh, it's really amazing to think about that's an example of how one of the metro area shelters operates now. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that they're all in, in a state of changing because I think they've all had to had uh, through the pandemic have had to deal with different things like that, like working at home. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The pandemic has been kind of a magnifying glass of what was there, mm-hmm. and it's forcing us to think differently about that. And when I and when I hear you say the professionalization and the fragmentation, what have we lost as a result of that professionalization? Do you think? I think we've lost what every advocate had to be trained on on the protection order. Everyone, and we didn't sit at desks. It's like. God, I, I I tell every every advocate still, it's like, are you sitting at a desk? <laughs> if they say yes to me, I said, you're doing the wrong job. You're not doing your job right because you should not be sitting at a desk. They have to be sitting with the women at the dining room table or somewhere. They have to be out talking to them. They have to be they have to be talking with them. We had to do one-to-one advocacy that was sorting out the women's story. And that's the most important thing of all, because everything begins with that, sorting out what she's willing to tell you. And you have to think of it in that way. She trusts me enough to tell me this, which may not be a whole lot. And then another week or another day, she's willing to tell me something else. And, you know, it the story will grow as her trust grows with you. Now you hear women say, well... All, all those battered women, they lie. And it's not lying. It's like she doesn't trust you enough to tell you anything. Exactly. But, um, yeah. and, but we have to do uh, one-to-one advocacy. We do legal advocacy, medical and housing advocacy, and whatever else might be in that, uh, systems advocacy, legislative advocacy, and media advocacy. Well, they all don't happen together. I would say that the four of them consistently do, the one-to-one advocacy, the legal advocacy, and the medical housing, et cetera, and then the systems advocacy. Because you always have to keep in mind, if the story the woman is telling you is related to another woman's story, and if it's related to one or two other women's stories, you have to think about how they're similar. And that it's not just one or two women, that it's it's a, a majority of the women. And then then you have to think about how, how you can deal with that in a systems advocacy way, whichever that whichever way that may be. And then the legislative and media are not so much yours, but you have to 
be thinking about that in a way that makes sense. You know, there, there are some people that take that on as a full-time job, but in the other types of advocacy, we should all know that there, there are things that we should all know. And that's all of those. And one-to-one advocacy is the most important that everything begins with that. Well, and it sounds what you're saying, Eileen, is not just one-to-one to advocacy, but finding ways to connect with women and recognizing that connection is what yes. will lead to that trust, not the degree or the office or yes. uh, the physical environment. It's how you engage with survivors. Right. I, I remember a woman that it was the first ICWA case that I had worked with and the woman had been there almost a month and and a month was a time limit at that time. I went outside and was talking with her. She was asking some questions about me and I answered in general those questions. Well, she wanted to know who I was, what tribe I was, and and all all of those kinds of things. And I I told her, and then she said, well, I have this, and she handed me a court order. It was from Child Welfare, and they said that they were taking away her child, and they were going to end her parental rights. And I said, is this true? Because I, you know, she had Uh, basically said that she didn't have any children. Turned out she had a five-year-old boy and she wanted him to be safe. She didn't want to bring him into the shelter. She was from another state. She found the Indian people in the community who would direct her. And she lived on the streets for a while, she and her child, and she found her way to a shelter. Well, when she came to the shelter, she first went to child welfare and brought her child there. So she knew her child would be safe. Well, three weeks later, they were going to terminate her parental rights. And that's still an issue for women today. They If they don't know how to get into shelter, there are fewer than 50 native shelters in the country. Mm-hmm. And if you go to non-native shelter they may or may not know how to help with an ICWA case or may not know the rules around that. Yeah, that and that's um, such an important consideration. I mean, you know, you said earlier about how we have to be educated, but there's a lot to learn. But it seems like there's some important starting points for non-Native advocates. Are there particular thoughts that you have that they need to keep in mind when they're working with Native survivors? Well, I don't know, ever since the Indian Child Welfare Act, well, it's been bought against since it was passed in 78. And so it's dragging along still. And uh, there's still social workers trying to shut that down. And basically, it's still questioned today, but people need to know about it. How you would know about it, I, I don't know what your state deals with. I would start with the coalition and find out that the coalition has a has a relationship with a a particular native resource and and can find out who knows about ICWA and can they get uh, training on it because almost every woman that's going to have a child that isn't school age for sure is going to have an ICWA case mm. no matter what Eileen, as I listen to you, I'm thinking about how you're so active 
in this yes. work and in the movement. Will you tell us a little bit about your work today and how, you know, what brought you to this place to do that work? Well, um, I wasn't going to do this work. <laughs> I moved into this place called Elders Lodge and I thought, oh, I can start up a little discussion about about violence <laughs> against women. So I'd bring about three different articles downstairs every week and more and more women started coming. So we had a group of about 20 women coming down and there are 42 apartments in this building. And we had about 20 or so women. We started meeting every week and we started Ogichidakwe Council. And we, over the past seven years, seven or eight years, We've been funded by the by the Office of Justice Programs, and it's just been a training. It's been two trainings a year, and and the interesting thing is that we hold drum groups, which are healing. At the end of each training, everyone makes a drum as a graduation gift, and all, all of the things that we do are for healing. And we say that the purpose of these drum groups, whether whether you've been victimized or not, has been for the healing of sexual assault victims. When I hear you talk about healing, and you've mentioned that throughout the conversation, I I think about you said earlier about how we're so fragmented right now, and there's still so much pain out there in Mm -hmm. the broader world, of course, but even in this movement and then in Native communities. And I wonder what are your thoughts about how we should move forward from this place of pain that we've all experienced so much lately? I'm 76. Well, I could live to be 90 or 100 or or I could die tomorrow. (laughs) Who knows? But anyway, I'm training community women. And to me, that makes a difference because before always trained advocates and so on and so forth. And and they're afraid to talk about rape. And every about nine out of 10 women have been raped. And you can't be a woman who's afraid to talk about rape if you're going to be doing violence against women and work. And we say... We call it violence against women because every woman has been raped and every woman has been battered. With us as Native women, we have to be able to talk about rape. We have to be able to know how to set aside the trauma of rape. Because if you're if you're doing advocacy with a woman, if you start to get triggered, you're going to be out of there, whatever way. You're not going to be communicating with a woman or whatever. So you have to learn how to be in control of your trauma, and you have to set that aside, and you have to continue on with that woman. And so I'm teaching women now how to advocate through their own pain. So you said, Eileen, that you're, you're focusing on, on uh, training community women. Are you shifting your focus away from advocates and the broader community? And what what made you do that? Well, I'm thinking that if I if I train community women, those women include advocates and they're always advocates at our training. So there are two or three advocates usually at our training and out of 20. I noticed that in our first training group we had we had 20 women and 16 were grandmas and three of them were advocates and one woman was a younger woman 
who uh, was the daughter of one of the grandmas, the training turned into talking circle the, the very first morning. The women who were advocates just could not talk about sexual assault throughout the whole thing. I believe there are some who can, but um, we felt that it was it was important for community women because there aren't going to be enough advocates. There aren't. There just aren't. There aren't going to be enough shelters. There are not going to be enough service providers. And not, we we need more than than what's available to us. And I value the the women's movement and I value the things that are there, but they're there for a specific purpose. I'll I'll refer them or I'll I'll use them in the, in in whatever way I can, but I believe it's important to teach uh, women how to help other women. Well, that's so powerful too, because I, I often think about what I, I'm a survivor of battering too, but um, Mm -hmm. there were no resources for me at the time because it was in a lesbian relationship, but, and I don't think I even knew about shelter then, but now I still think sometimes, would I go to a shelter if I could? It certainly wouldn't be my first choice if I was in crisis. And I, I, I really resonate with your saying that we have to look beyond the traditional structures in this movement to find ways in which the community is responding and not just the organization, even though those organizations are valuable. They're valuable resources. We're a member of MUSAC and uh, a lot of our, a lot of women who have been uh, through the training have eventually found their way to MUSAC and have been a member of theirs. And, and it's really good because now they see themselves as a part of MUSAC and they see themselves as a survivor and they see themselves as a drum group and they see themselves they see themselves as more than more than who they are who they would have defined themselves as being before mm-hmm. and it, it it was so small before they wouldn't have defined themselves they, they would have just been fear fearful well and it's broadening the connections for everybody it seems like that's really that collective action of bringing us together to create the change yes yes yeah. And so I wonder, Eileen, we're gonna, this has been so wonderful and you've been so generous with your sharing and thinking about as we start to wrap up what I'm thinking, what are the messages that you have for Native advocates and for non-Native advocates, the, the future of this work? And what is it that you would want them to know that, you know, uh, the takeaways that you hope they have? Well, I would like everyone to read sharing our stories of survival by Sarah Deer. I think that's a, that should be a basic in every, in every shelter, native and non-native alike. And then I would hope that the basics are covered and maintained that, that it's the one-to-one advocacy, the legal advocacy and, and so on and so forth, that it's all, all of those that they're maintained, that everyone knows them, that they're not just uh, something that are words or I, I don't know. It, I don't know how we can maintain the just the basic advocacy when the, when some of that isn't even happening. Diane, Eileen shared such important stories about the impact of racism and colonization 
both on her and Native women that she knew throughout her time in the movement. It really makes me wonder about each of our own path and how are we as a movement going to move forward from here? Absolutely. So many questions that were raised and food for thought. One of the things that I'm going to think more about, and I hope listeners do as well, is what are the ways that racism and colonization are still showing up in our movement? How are they still affecting survivors and affecting our communities? And what, as programs and as advocates, can we do about it? Yes, it's so important that we all think about that, Diane. Before we go, we want to thank Eileen Houdan for joining us to share her stories and to continue these conversations with us. This podcast has been hosted by Diane Dosis and Kate Sari, with additional production support from Beth Gibbs with Lyft Podcasting. Patrice Anthony and Amanda Watson, along with other Praxis staff, were instrumental in creating this podcast. We'd also like to thank the U.S. Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women for supporting this project. And thank you for listening. Be sure to follow A Force for Change on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future episodes. If you'd like to continue the conversation or find out more about our programs, you can reach us at info at praxisinternational.org or visit our website at praxisinternational.org.